Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Good to see everyone this morning. I'm so thankful, especially in, in August now, even though I was wrong last time. I, I preached in one service, I said August last month, but so glad when it is August and there are people here. Uh, very thankful for that. I know you guys are so busy and uh, just it's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be a part of our body. I'm just so thankful that the Lord lets us gather every day. And you know, this morning, I'm really thankful that Jeremy Kircher is here. I'm just, I'm so thankful that you showed up, Jeremy. I'm just, I'm, I know you're a busy guy. I know you just went through knee surgery. And so I want to make things a little bit easier for you. So I just really wanted to give you this uh, free car wash gift certificate. So no, you, you, get it, you can use it. It'll help you out whether it's the work truck or yours. You can make it all work. So you know, I think it's, it's funny in our current day and age how much we, we are suspicious of acts like that, and probably rightly so. Um, you know, you probably notice on your social media, your reels, these people giving away, you know, MacBook Pros or, or even a car, $5,000. And, you know, we know it's not really grace and favor of why they're giving that to us. They're doing it for likes, for clicks. And in fact, by doing so, they actually make more money than they ever gave away in the first place. Now, you know, people are usually okay with that because they walk away with a MacBook Pro. <laughs> They're real happy with that arrangement. Uh, I've even seen churches do this. I saw a church once uh, for, for Easter give away a car. Um, and their rationale behind it was it got people to the church to hear about Jesus Christ. And I'm just a little hesitant about that because I'm not quite sure how, how church would function if it was sort of like Oprah's favorite things every time people showed up. Like, like what am I going to get this week? Kind of a weird mix of worldly desires and godly passions and understanding. You know, it, it actually can feel fairly uncommon to get true grace, true favor bestowed upon us uh, just for no reason. And I, I think that's one of the, the beautiful things about coming to church every week is that we, I think we do receive in hearing God's word, uh, having it, it put before us through song, through word, and just being with one another to encourage each other, we do get just copious amounts of grace put on us that we might begin to see and love God in new ways. You know, friend... A friend of mine here at Rev, almost every week through this Roman series, has come up to me afterwards and said, I just, can you believe how amazing the grace of God is? And he says it almost every time through tears welling up. And I just, I love that. I love how grace, unmerited favor, just uh, brings up thankfulness in us. And it, and it should. You know, grace is, is truly mind-blowing. Uh, to have someone give us favor where we don't deserve it and to get nothing back from us is so contrary to our experience uh, in, in the world. And, and don't tell Jeremy, but that was for a sermon illustration in a minute, right? He's going to have the same experience. Um, you know, as a parent, I find it hard to model grace. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like I've got these two jobs that are, are kind of opposing at different times. On the one hand, as a parent, I'm supposed to help my kids just understand how the world works, kind of like the writer of Proverbs, right? I'm supposed to remind them that if they don't work, they're not going to eat, right? Proverbs 6 or Proverbs 12. Uh, I'm supposed to encourage them that if they go down different paths in life, they're going to end up with real temptations and real, real evil that's meant to destroy their soul, like Proverbs 4 and 17. And even more so, I'm supposed to remind them about, about the great news of God and God's revealed uh, revelation to us. Uh, the things that we wouldn't know otherwise, things like lying is wrong, cheating others is bad, and that God alone deserves our praise. Uh, things that we see in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, places like that. 
Yet I'm also supposed to model at times the same kind of grace that God bestows upon us, unmerited favor and grace. I think most of us don't remember the time where our parents probably did that the most for us, right? 2 a.m. wake-ups in the middle of the night, crying for no reason, changing diapers doesn't work, feeding doesn't work, and our parents lovingly held us till they could figure out how to get us to sleep. Or when you were two years old, sitting in the middle of a grocery store, maybe in the front row of a church, throwing a tantrum, and your parents kindly just escort you out instead of all the other options available to them in that moment. In fact, you just being here today is an acknowledgement, a realization of how much grace that you've been given by a parent or a caretaker at some point that you would even make it this far in your life. You know, Paul, Paul's been trying to share how, how excited he is, how mind-blowing he sees this grace that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And this is where he started out in Romans 1. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. And Paul is excited to share that, share that with these Roman readers that he's not sure what they've heard about the gospel so far. And he's excited for us to have it as well. Yet, as we noted in chapter one, he immediately moved from just the good news to the bad news. The bad news that that makes the good news such good news. The reality that you and I, that we are all sinners that we failed to live rightly as image bearers of God. And Paul reminds us, we all know that just by general revelation. We know that by how the world functions around that. We know that that by how our own consciences testify to when we don't act properly. And as though we might think we could get away from that, uh, Paul says in chapter 2 that it's not necessarily better off to have God's word and his law. In fact, by having God's word and his law, we know what's wrong, but we still can't do it. And you see, we have a bigger problem than just a knowledge problem. We have a heart problem. We have a wanting problem. We don't want to do what God has commanded us to do. We need God to break through, to change us, to to help us want to walk in a relationship with him or live in our lives. You know, God did it. There's nothing that we could do. In fact, uh, Paul talks about this idea of righteousness, and we talked about it being this, the righteousness of God is that righteous act by which a righteous God brings people into right relationship with himself by making them righteous in Jesus Christ. It's all about God. It's all about what he did. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, but now. It's this turn in Romans 3, both in the letter, but also in our reality and our understanding of this amazing thing that God did in history through Jesus Christ. He says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God did everything. God did everything. That's all those words are trying to say. From beginning to end, God did everything. We talked about how God righteous us. Righteousness was flowing out of God all over the place into our lives and everything that he did with Jesus Christ on the cross. And we talked about this, how we saw there that God was just. He was the righteous God acting righteously to all people. 
that he became the justifier, the righteous God making his people righteous through his righteous act in Jesus Christ, and that he justified us, that we haven't been declared righteous by the righteous God through faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You hear righteousness again and again. It's coming out all over the place, that God justified himself, that he was shown as uh, having character of righteousness in his plan to make us righteous in Jesus Christ, while still dealing with our sins by punishing Jesus on our behalf. And that justification occurred. It's the moment where the righteous God declares those who have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as being righteous in him. And that's even true today through faith. In fact, that's last statement's the crucial point. None of this comes because of our works. None of this comes because of the status of the family that we've been born into. None of it comes because of our adherence to the law. God did it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, faith that God would even do such a thing, that God would care for us enough that he would provide a way for us back into relationship with himself to make us righteous, that that could even happen because God gives us grace and because of the faith that we have in him. And Paul says this in Romans 3.20, he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the, the law. I mean, that should blow our minds Every paradigm that we have should be shattered of how we understand things work usually, the way that we get back what we give and how people treat us according to how we treat them. That's not what God did. God decidedly treated us outside of that, very lovingly and graciously in Jesus Christ. If you've grown up in church, you might have been missing this for so long that, that God, who we've infinitely sinned against, would choose to love us instead of punish us is an amazing thing. That we might be made righteous before him is incredible. You know, for some, for some in, in this process, one of the questions might be, why did God wait until then to do that? And that's, that's the question Jack t- uh, tackled in Romans chapter 4 that Paul talks about. And, and Paul says this has always been God's plan from Genesis to now. In fact, he goes back and he uses Abraham as the example for that. You know, Abraham, who was circumcised, You know, Abraham wasn't circumcised so that God would be happy with him. Abraham was circumcised out of his faith in a God who was going to provide. His works flowed from that faith, from that righteousness that Paul says was accounted to him, not to create it. It was his hope. And chapter 4 really begins that theme of hope that kind of starts going throughout all of Romans, this idea that we can hope in our God to do what we could never do to hope that he would give us the righteousness that we need, that he would save us from our sins. You know, chapter 5 continued that theme of hope, and Anthony Higgins taught us that. Uh, Paul reminds us in chapter 5 that we have hope because we are now identified in someone else. I mean, yes, very real things happened in what Jesus did for us on the cross, and Paul talks about that in the beginnings of chapter 5. But even more so, we have hope because we are identified in Christ Jesus. We are now seen in him, in his righteousness, in his good deeds, and in his sacrifice. You know, previously, we were seen in Adam. Uh, Adam, in his sin, was, was given to us as those who would have sinned as well in his position. And in Jesus, though, we now have grace and righteousness that we've received through him. Righteousness that has been accounted to us, that that is what God sees when he, when he looks on me and you as beloved sons and daughters. It's, it's such a beautiful exchange that occurs there at the cross and through Jesus. You know, Paul is aware that our heads are likely starting to hurt at this point, trying to understand the magnitude of grace and what it has done in our lives. It's such amazing news and such a great idea. You know, we've 
we have to have some, uh, some grace on those in the New Testament, especially around Jesus' time, who struggled with this because it's, it's such a life-shattering and changing idea. In fact, Paul knows the statements that he's been making can maybe begin to be confused as we think about grace and how it plays out in our life. Now, I know Jeremy would never do this, but it's sort of like giving Jeremy that, that card for a free car wash. And Jeremy's like, dude, Ryan has this magic pocket full of car washes. Like, I, I, should, I don't need to worry about washing my car ever again. In fact, I'm going to start mud bogging because then it'll really show that I appreciate those things. My car is going to be covered in mud every week, and Jeremy's going to become the one who every week sits there, makes really good eye contact with me, and waits expectantly, hoping that card comes out every week so that he can get that. And you may be going to say, oh, that's silly. Jeremy wouldn't do that with that. But that's exactly what Paul is saying is one of our temptations when we think about grace. That we might actually be tempted to say, well, hey, if grace looks so wonderful when it covers up my sin, why not just keep sinning so that it can look really good? Here's what Paul said in Romans 5.20 that might have started us down that route. He said, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is where someone might have said, yay, God is so powerful, so amazing that where the law not only showed me my sins, but also encouraged me to sin even more, if grace covers all that up, I might as well just keep going. Let's make God look really wonderful. He can just keep covering sin after sin. That won't be a problem. And Paul says, no way. Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this is the first of two places in Romans chapter 6 where Paul tries to deal with our misconceptions about grace. <coughs> That's really his main concern throughout chapter 6. You know, grace is so amazing, so big, so incomprehensible, really, that we begin to unhinge it from what it was meant to do in our lives, how we're meant to understand it and misapply it in wrong ways. You know, grace here in chapter 6 actually becomes sort of a shorthand for Paul to talk about this entire thing that's happened to us in Jesus Christ, our salvation, our justification, our faith, and he's pointing to that. And Paul's actually going to start diving into some murky waters here. You know, he's going to try to make sense of our experience today and how we, we relate to Jesus and the cross and where we're at today. And what's really happened is he's struggling with this idea of already, not yet. Right, right? On the one hand, there are things that are already true that will never change, will never be different. At the cross, in Jesus' death, in his resurrection in power, you and I have been fully made righteous before God. That's why he can look on you and me today in love as a beloved son, a beloved daughter. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, that that is true, that we can actually know him and walk with him today, read his word and know what he is saying. But that second part, that not yet, is also part of the truth of our existence. Uh, that's all true, but we don't see it fully in every way yet. Uh, we are those who still have a body of sin uh, it's sin that's working against that, that, that we don't see completely destroyed yet today. And so there's this moment where what's already true is still not fully seen, worked out in our lives yet. And so we struggle with what's going on. And Paul wants to dive in and, and deal with that here in chapter 6. And Paul starts by grounding us again in our identity. For Paul, everything starts with who we are now in Jesus Christ. 
before he wants to tell us to do anything, to fix anything, he wants us to realize who we are in Jesus. This is how he answers our, our first misconception about grace by saying this. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul starts here with something we need to know, something we need to believe, a reality he wants to orient us towards. He's done that multiple times in Romans 1 through 6, and he'll continue to do that throughout this letter. We need to know that we have a new reality today because of what happened in Jesus Christ. And here Paul says that we have died to sin. That's a weird thing to say to someone who's still alive. What do you mean I've died in one sense and not? So Paul goes to imagery here. He goes to the imagery of baptism. Now it's interesting, like for Paul, baptism is is such a common experience for Christians that he can just go there and assume we're gonna start to understand what he is saying here. You know, Paul expected that every Christian that he met was baptized. We see that when he gets to Ephesus in Acts 19. Uh, We see that Paul baptizes those that he converts along the way. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1. We also see, though, that Paul's careful to try to not let us misunderstand baptism as though it's about who's baptizing or the work. Rather, it's obedience to God and what he's called us to do. In fact, this passage gets brought into the debates about baptisms at different times. Uh, We can learn some things about baptisms from this passage. You know, Paul's imagery here of baptism with death and life is one of the reasons why many churches like our church believe that immersion is probably the main way that baptism occurred because the imagery doesn't work very good with sprinkling. (laughs) This idea of needing to die and be raised again to new life, though we don't make that a point to argue about. Similarly, Paul Paul seems to presume that faith came first, then baptism. It's one of the reasons why we look for a proclamation of faith before we baptize someone. Yet, even though that's stuff we could kind of pull out of this passage, baptism isn't the main goal of what Paul's trying to bring up here. You know, Paul was to try to be arguing that baptism's the thing, uh, the important sign. It'd be like he's not agreeing with what he just wrote in Romans 4 about circumcision. All right, it'd be going back and making that into something that we don't want to make it into. Paul seems to be using baptism here, uh, again, sort of as a shorthand for this whole idea of everything that's happened to us in Jesus Christ. And this idea that, that in, our, in our salvation on the cross, in our justification, in our faith, something very real has happened to me and you. And it looks very much so like death and life. Again, he's grasping at words here of images. You know, we have had something very real change because of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, not that we need to go back and and somehow die and be resurrected again just now so that we can be saved, though we all will die and be resurrected. Rather, real things happen for us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul starts by saying that we died to sin and we were raised to a newness of life. And he continues on in verse 5 saying this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Our being in Jesus and not in Adam 
means that some things have died and some things are new and have come to new life. What died, Paul says, is our own old man, our body of sin. Uh, this, this passion to sin really truly died at the cross. It's no longer true about us. You know, Jesus died that we might be set free from sin. And what was received was new life. Now, we're never going to truly see death again. Uh, we'll see death in the physical sense, but not separation from God. We've been brought back into life and relationship with him. And we can expect that what Christ did is now true for us today as we are identified in Christ. So Paul says this, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is starting with our identity in Jesus Christ because he wants everything that he's going to say next throughout Romans 6 to never have the chance of us thinking that we're trying to work our way back into good graces with God. He wants us to realize that that has to flow out of our identity with him. <clears throat> there is nothing for us to do. In that regard, Christ has done it. He has died once and for all. That phrase means like once, it's done, it's over, never has to happen again. Paul is basing everything on chapter 6 on that reality in Jesus. He wants us to base our reality in that as well. Uh, that Jesus has done it all for me and you. That he's assured what he's asking us to actually do. And he's giving us the power to do it. You know, just like Abraham, Paul is combining Romans 4 and chapter 5 in a new way here in 6 to give us encouragement as we fight against our sins. And with this knowledge then, Paul says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You know, Paul switches imagery here. Paul's really good at doing this. He's going to do it a couple more times. He switches from baptism to kingdom language. You know, he says here that something will reign in your life, and the thing that wants to reign in your life is sin. Sin wants to be your master. I think we often forget that. Uh, we often forget that there is a battle going around in us, around us all the time for our soul, and who is going to be master over us. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle said in his book, called holiness. He said, true Christianity is a struggle, a fight, and a warfare. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. And that's what's going on around us. Paul's encouraging us that we don't need to listen to sin anymore. It doesn't need to win. It doesn't need to reign in our lives. It's not our master, nor is it our king. And he continues that kind of language throughout this next section. Romans 6.13 says this. He says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for his righteousness. The imagery here is that of a soldier presenting his, his weapons, his sword or his, his gun to his commanding officer or the king, saying that this and himself and his weapons are now in service of God. And here Paul's saying, you're, you've got two things. Your body is both the throne that sin wants to sit on, but it's also the members by which you fight either for sin or for God. <coughs> and Paul's encouraging us to present our members, our very body, as it were, to God, that it might serve for righteousness. And he comes back to this idea of our identity again in verse 14 and says, says for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but grace. The law, it points out sin, and in fact, it causes me and you to sin more. And here Paul says that sin reigned and had power over us when we were under the law, but now under grace, 
Because our old man has died to sin, when we are raised new in Jesus, sin has no power in us. Sin is no longer master. You know, in giving us this vision, this, this idea that, that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ now, that this should all work differently, Paul realizes he's actually maybe setting us up for another misunderstanding about grace. <clears throat> it actually comes from this passage here where it says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, Paul's concern is that someone might hear that and feel like I'm unhinged from all requirements now. There's no requirement in my life towards any kind of obedience uh, it's, it's again back to Jeremy for a minute. You know, instead of presuming that, that I will continue to give him more car washes, maybe Jeremy's just presumed there's actually no rules about taking care of cars anymore, right? I mean, he can get free car washes. Maybe Ryan will also deal with his oil changes. You know, if the tire's flat, that'll come out too. And man, he probably doesn't even need to buy gas anymore. You know, Jeremy tried that this week. It'd probably be a really short experiment. And again, it kind of sounds funny, but like that's the kind of thing that we're doing when we listen to what Paul keeps saying with grace, You know, the concern is that in freeing people from the reign of sin and the law, that we will find ourselves tethered to nothing. And that's where Paul wants to go next. That's what he says here in Romans 6.15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And Paul, again, flips the imagery here. And we started with baptism, and we moved on to kingdom language, and now he's going to talk about slavery, enslavement. And that's a hard image. And he says that if at one point we were slaves, not just subjects to sin, we now need to find ourselves slaves of righteousness. You know, Paul even knows this is a really hard image. I mean, for us Americans with our version of slavery that occurred, but all versions of slavery have very difficult ideas in it, ways that we're like, should that be a good thing? Should I ever really want to be a slave? And Paul knows that's a hard picture. He's borrowing from Jesus, from John 8, 31, where Jesus talks about the leaders, the religious leaders being under sin and enslaved to it. And Paul even says this in Romans six nineteen. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul's like, I'm trying hard. I'm trying to find the right words to explain this. And one of the ways Paul does that and tempers this idea of slavery is to talk about the fruit of it, that those who are enslaved to sin find that the fruit that comes out of that is death, but that those who find themselves enslaved to righteousness get something very different. It leads to more righteousness. I mean, that should sound good. That's why Paul says this here. He says this in Romans 6, 17 through 19. He says, but thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to the lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, (coughs) so now present your members as slaves to righteousness uh, leading to sanctification, progressive righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Having told us that that this identity, that, that we are either slaves to sin or slaves to obedience... Paul asks us to participate in that reality. And we now have a heart of obedience, he says. God has actually changed our heart. That's the thing we needed most. 
We now have a soft heart, open eyes, ears that can hear. It says that all those things, living out of that heart of obedience, will lead to righteousness and sanctification. We've mentioned that word sanctification already, uh, though, it, but we haven't defined it. Uh, sanctification is rooted in that same idea of righteousness and justification and justice that we've already talked about. You know, if justification is the moment the righteous God declares those who have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as being righteous in him, sanctification is the process through which the righteous God, through the Holy Spirit, slowly changes in this lifetime those who have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be more righteous like them, like him. It's what we should want. Uh, we should want to see that process of growth in righteousness as God slowly works in our hearts through his Holy Spirit, continually conforming us to be more and more like Christ Jesus. You know, Paul says that those under the law don't focus on their righteousness, but just on getting the law done. But those who focus on the righteousness of God find the righteousness of God being worked out in their lives and find themselves sanctified. You know, Paul ends our chapter in verse 23 here and says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is the free gift of God. You know, the chapter that began with the question, should we remain in sin in order that grace may increase, has ended with glad tidings that we are under grace in order that sin may be overcome. And because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we now truly have the power to fight sin in our lives and to, to see it defeated. And the fight against the death that was once was certain. Uh, there is no sin in our life outside of God's power by the will of his Holy Spirit and his desires that we cannot fight against. We can be confident that God's Spirit is at work in us and in the gift of grace and we can be certain of our ultimate success and our eternal life with Jesus Christ. So the question this chapter begs then is, where are you, where am I, presuming on grace this morning? We are all going to presume on grace in many different ways at different times in our life. You know, for some of us today, we are presuming on grace that we might as well just not worry about our sins, let them multiply, because God then can just heap more and more grace upon us. We're forgetting in that moment that we truly have died to sin. And some of the others of us are, are forgetting that we are not untethered now under grace. We're no longer tethered to just follow the law, but rather we're, we're tethered to an obedient heart. And we're tethered to, to righteousness as God has called us to walk in righteous ways. So where are you this morning struggling to not allow sin to reign? Is it in your lust or your sexuality? Is it in gluttony, drunkenness, or overall slothfulness? Is it in your pride? Is it in your identity, in your job, or in your family? Is it in anger, jealousy, or hatred? And in what ways are you allowing sin to reign and either forgetting to put it off or realizing you need to tether yourself to God's righteous desires? And I really mean that. Stop for a moment this morning and ask God to reveal to you, where are you presuming on grace and allowing sin to reign or not allowing righteousness to be your focus. When we come to a passage like this this morning, I think there's several ways that we can respond to that kind of a question, to what, to what God's word is bringing towards us. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, I pray that throughout Romans you have been seeing again and again your predicament 
that you are a sinner in great need of love and grace and mercy. And God has offered that by faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to draw you near as a beloved son and daughter through your faith in Jesus. I pray that's what you would be moving into and what you'd be allowing God to be doing and working in your life, not to use the law, not to use your works, but rather to trust in God's grace alone in your life. You know, second, if you're here as a Christian, I, I pray that as you're, you're, you're hearing these things, you actually are being convinced or convicted about certain sins in your life, ways that you really are, are presuming on grace, allowing sin to just pile up, just hoping God will deal with all of it, or not tethering yourself to righteousness and untethering from everything else. You know, if you're feeling that, I, I want to encourage you, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that you would be feeling the conviction of God that things in your life aren't quite right. And yet as a Christian, I think we have two responses when that begins to well up. And maybe you're feeling one or both of these this morning. And I think one of the things that I, I have seen often in myself is that I might get angry or frustrated at that reality, that the process is hard. I want to say things to God like, God, I, don't, I know I don't want this sin here. I keep trying to deal with it. I want it to be gone. Lord, why is this the way it has to keep going? I want to encourage you. That's a normal feeling. In fact, that's exactly where Paul's going to go in chapter 7, when Paul's going to lament the fact that he still keeps doing things that he doesn't want to do. You know, we are like a, a caterpillar that's being metamorphosized in real time. Uh, right, we are, we are changing into something and it's yet not quite all the way, but things are certain that we are going to be that. And it's like there's just this goo inside the cocoon and it doesn't feel like it's quite working the way you would want it to work all the time. I mean, in a very real way, we are all experiencing a death in our lifetime. We're experiencing the death of sin. And it has its knuckles white, its claws dug deep, and it is wanting to drag us down in that death. And our joy is that that will never happen. Our joy is that in Jesus Christ, sin will never reign again. It will not win the battle. The defeat has already happened. Even if we're experiencing that death still today, as our sin is slowly dying in the beautiful grace of God. But, you know, even when these emotions come up and we maybe remind ourselves, okay, that's normal. God is going to win. He's going to succeed. I find in myself, and maybe you find in yourself, or I've seen it happen so many times, this desire and still to run back to works. To hear all that, to notice your sin and say, you know what, I'll go clean it up. I'll fix it. I mean, it's like, it's like Jeremy and I have been talking this morning, you know, with his little gift card. And the problem is Jeremy's realized he doesn't even have an engine. He doesn't even have tires. And that car doesn't even have a gas tank with gas in it. Yet he's somehow going to drag it and try to wash it up over at the car wash by himself and not even use the thing. It was true. Jeremy needs continual car washes. He needs even more than that. And that's what Paul has been trying to describe to us in our predicament, is that we needed more than we ever understood why, when we came to God in grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, would we go to anything else in the midst of our sins? Why, when we feel conviction, feel convinced that we are sinning at any given moment, would we want to run back to the law? The law, this, this taskmaster that brought death, that's an anchor of anguish and difficulty around our necks, why not come back to the sweet salve of sanctification and salvation through Jesus Christ by grace alone. 
I mean, it may sound too easy, but believers, why not come back to that this morning as you're being convicted of your sin, as you see yourself presuming upon grace? And whether you need it for the first time this morning as an unbeliever or the 10,000th time as a believer, we need to see the beauty of the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to look upon. That's what Paul is begging us to do. We would be doing Paul a disservice to think that after all of this, all this grace, he's convicting us of our sin just so we can go fix it up more. Rather, he wants us to gaze upon the loving glory of God in his grace because love, and particularly the love of God in Jesus Christ, is what will change your actions. You have to look upon him. That's what he's encouraging us. I love this quote. It says, all religion is in effect love. <clears throat> Faith is thankful acceptance and thankfulness is an expression of love. Repentance is love mourning. Yearning for holiness is love seeking. Obedience is love pleasing. Self-denial is the mortification of self-love. Sobriety is the curtailing of carnal love. If love is not activated and kept working, it will atrophy. The affections of man cannot be kept idle. If they do not go out to God, they leak out to worldly things. When our love for God decreases, the love of the world grows in our soul. Love's constraining influence keeps us from living to and for ourselves. How earnestly we should pray for the succoring, strengthening, and stimulating of our love. One of the Holy Spirit's ministries in us is to stir up our love to God. That's what we should be finding ourselves longing for this morning. Not a new law, a new way to deal with those sins, but rather a new glimpse of love a new glimpse of the grace of God and what he's provided for us in Jesus Christ. That's where our affections should be aimed, and that is what will change our affections towards the world. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you that you have chosen in your, in your grace that when you call us out as those who are failing and we are still failing, what you gave us the first time and what you still give us today is grace. Lord God, thank you that, that you continue to show yourself to us. You show us the beauty of what you have done in Jesus Christ and how all things for us have been done there. Uh, that we are not to run back to the law and find ourselves trying to fix things again, but rather, Lord God, that we might gaze again upon the beauty of what you have done in love through giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through the cross, his death, and resurrection. Lord God, may we gaze upon it more. Would you, would you raise our affections that it would cloud out any desire for any kind of sin that, Lord, our love would be focused so fully and dearly on you that you are all we see and want. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> this morning I'd encourage you as you uh, take the communion elements. They're located at tables in the back and on the side here. If you'll just hold them, I'd encourage you to think through this song and just in your hearts about the grace of God all the amazing things that he's done for us in love, in grace, through Jesus Christ in faith.